solving puzzles and, have, and adventures. And I think typography or typeface design is the same thing for me as to having the, trying to understand a culture and history uh, is important to design a typeface. everyone thanks for tuning into nodes of design to help support our mission spread knowledge we have a very special guest on today's episode let's welcome joe stisline joe is a creative director and a typeface designer he had worked with steve jobs to define apple's photography and packaging standards and with michelle obama to launch a let's move program for healthy schools he also designed the iconic identities for netflix nike fnicknet dwell magazine and mac os x along with these he also built a global design studio at google and had designed type faces in major writing systems around the world created campaigns that made Nike free the world the best selling shoe in this episode joe had shared wonderful insights on typography and we discussed on what's a major difference between a typeface and a font and how to choose a perfect typeface from millions of available choices in the later part we discussed on what are the best practices for choosing a font pair and joe had shared us with some wonderful examples on different popular font pairs that one can use in the end we spoke on how to craft typography for accessibility and we ended the show by Joe's words of advice for young designers to get into typography and build attractive portfolios. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode and on every Friday we release new episodes with different creative leaders from around the world to help you better understand different concepts related to design. So don't forget to tune in into Notes of Design every Friday. With that being said, happy designing everyone. Hi, Joe. Welcome to Nodes of Design. It's a pleasure hosting you today on our show. Uh, thank you very much, Tej. I'm uh, very happy to be here. Thank you, Joe. So how's your day going? It just started here. It's uh, about 8.30 um, in California, 8.30 a.m. So we just got the uh, kids up and ready to do their schoolwork because they're in remote school, of course, like most of the, much of the United States. Uh, but just getting started and excited to talk with you. That's great, Joe. So if you could give a brief about yourself to our audience out there. Sure. Uh, my name is Joe Stitzline. I've been a creative director and design, designer, graphic designer and type designer for about 25 years. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest and um, I've worked for um, many agencies and uh, companies doing design from uh, Pentagram to uh, SY Partners, uh, Nike. Uh, I worked at Landor. Uh, and then uh, my last real job was at Google. And I've owned my own studio, uh, who I run, which I run with my wife. She's also a designer. Uh, we've been running it for about five years now. And uh, I've done a wide variety of work, uh, which I enjoy. Uh, everything from designing typefaces to designing uh, logos like the Netflix logo and uh, designing um, campaigns at Nike for, for many footwear launches, as well as the Olympic trials. Um, and then, um, you know, we've been focusing a lot uh, in the last five years on um, motion first identities, uh, identities that are code based, um, you know, because a lot of, the, of what we do is very digital, of course. And so um, we work with a lot of uh, engineers and creative technologists to bring our design ideas to life, which is always fun and it's always changing, which just keeps it engaging and interesting. 
That's wonderful, Joe. So what was your journey into design and how did you start? And what are your tips to the beginners on how to start? Oh, well, that's a great question. You know, I, I was in high school. I really enjoyed art class and painting. Um, I was always, a you know, a, a, an OK student. I really enjoyed learn, uh, reading, but I wasn't really engaged with academia until I took an art class. And, um, you know, I was kind of saved by an art teacher, uh, Mrs. Crockett. <laughs> and uh, she taught me, you know, to love painting and love drawing. And uh, that's when I really started uh, becoming engaged more as a student in general. Um, and from high school, um, you know, the local university uh, where I grew up in the Midwest in a town called Cincinnati happened to have a world-class design program, but it was just this, it was just kind of a community school, lucky, lucky for me. And uh, I went there and happened to fall into a world-class graphic design program. I didn't even know what uh, graphic design necessarily was. Um, you know, and back in the 90s, graphic design wasn't as, you know, wide, widely known like it is now. You know, we didn't have uh, the web. Um, uh, we didn't have, you know, everybody knows what graphic design or design is. And everyone knows what marketing is now. But back then, it was more cutting edge. Um, and there weren't that many designers. And so uh, I didn't know much about it going into it. And, um, you know, I really loved the craft. Uh, I loved um, the research involved. Um, I loved that it had some science aspects from color theory, you know, to ideas around legibility, um, process was involved. So I loved all of that. Um, I, and that's why I wasn't good as a fine artist because I didn't like it being too wide open. Uh, I like constraints and I like working with and constraints and I like collaborating with others. Um, so that's why I've always enjoyed working with clients and working with a brief and trying to communicate an idea. So uh, I think I just kind of fell into design um, and then, uh, you know, went from from college. Uh, I did internships in college in New York and San Francisco and uh, did an internship at Pentagram, did an internship at Landor in San Francisco and uh, really fell in love with the West Coast in, in the United States, which at the time was very forward uh, thinking in terms of design, very progressive. And uh, after I graduated from school, I uh, didn't have a job, but I got a one-way train ticket and a couple of portfolios and uh, went out and looked for a job. And, um, you know, I've been out here uh, ever since for 25 years. So, um, so just kind of got lucky and fell into it. That's a wonderful journey, Joe. So if you could share with us the insights behind your project on Netflix logo and Nike and your Google experience that you had. Sure. Sure. Well, so there's a lot of different projects that I think I've really been lucky to be involved with and been at the right time in the right place. Um, you know, Netflix at the time, I think it was around 99, 2000. Uh, they, they were around, they weren't a startup exactly, but they were, um, you know, they were mailing all those red envelopes all over the world, all over the country. I believe they were just the United States at the time. And they still do mail DVDs, by the way. But at the time they uh, came to us, I was in an agency called CKS. At the time, they came to us, uh, you know, looking for a, a more cohesive identity, and we created more of a cinematic identity for them. Um, so I did the uh, black and white logo with the black outline that evoked um, uh, marquees on cinemas. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I designed that for them and really just tried to bring the idea of cinema to life. And at the time, they, they talked about their ideas for the future, which I was pretty skeptical about. You know, they were very... Uh, they were very honest about wanting to stream movies, which in the year 2000 was seen as being more science fiction <laughs> because, you know, the bandwidth didn't simply didn't exist uh, in much of the world to stream, you know, even a, a 480p movie, much less, 
you know, 1080p or now 4K. They didn't have 4K back then, but to think about the throughput necessary for that, for them to talk about that, I was pretty skeptical that they would ever get to that point. But, you know, it wasn't an accident, accident that they named themselves Netflix and not uh, DVDs by mail, right? So they always had that in mind. And I think what that taught me was um, I really uh, enjoy uh, working with clients on their future roadmap and understanding their plans for the future and designing for the future, not today. Uh, and that's where I've been lucky to work with brands like Netflix and Nike and Google that are always thinking about the next 10, 20 years, not just the next three months. And so how do we design a brand roadmap for that road, for that future, not just a brand that represents what they are today? Because we do try to design things that are timeless. Um, that's one thing I was taught as a graphic designer, because I was taught in more of a Swiss style uh, more clean, more timeless, and, and I really believe in creating long-term solutions for our clients. Now, what was interesting about Nike was that uh, you know we taught we were taught to um, you know design for emotion. You know, we were taught to you know to get on a kid's get a poster on a kid's bedroom wall or in a kid's locker um, or make a T-shirt. You know, that's what we aspire to do is to create things that make people feel something, which in some ways is easier with sport than it is with uh, a Netflix or working with Apple. Um, although people are certainly have emotional connections to those brands too. Um, but with sports, whether it's Adidas or, or Nike or Puma or any of the other sport brands, you know, it's more uh, expected within those design cultures. So I really enjoyed, you know, taking my kind of understanding about systems um, and Swiss training and then learning at Nike how to turn that into emotional design around campaigns and uh, footwork communications. Um, so that was, I learned a lot and had a lot of fun creating events around marathons. Um, you know, we, uh, one of the projects that I was proud to work on was uh, the Nike Free, which is the shoe that bent like your foot. And at the time, uh, everybody was into, and this is the, the mid 2010s, you know, everybody was into these natural shoes that, that you know, kind of moved with your foot. Um, and it became the world's best-selling shoe, not just in sport, but uh, the best-selling shoe period. And so I was happy to be a small part of that success for Nike. Um, and I learned a lot along the way. Uh, you know, the other thing were events we worked on where I learned how to create retail environments. I had marathons with Olympic trials. We did a project called uh, Camp Victory uh, in Oregon where we brought the um, Nike Plus community, which is, which is a digital community, into, into the real world. And uh, we kind of gamified it with these large screens where runners can run against each other and see their scoreboard in real time with their, their speed in real time. So that was a lot of fun to think about how do we take digital experiences and make them analog? How do you create uh, retail campaigns that um, you know really excite runners and other athletes? Um, so that, that, was, that was a really wonderful time in my career as well. Thank you so much, Joe. And we've been getting a lot of questions from our listeners on your experience oh. working with Steve Jobs and Michelle Obama. If you could share some light on that as well. Yeah, I have a lot of Steve Jobs stories. Well, I, I when I was at CCAS working on Netflix, uh, I was also, my main job, actually Netflix was just a small thing I worked on and designed that, that logo type um, for maybe a day, you know, but my main job I was being an art director for Apple. Uh, now they have a really large in-house department at Apple, but back then, much of the work was done um, by CKS, by an agency, CKS. And so I was freelance. And so um, it was late 90s. Uh, we were uh, helping launch the Titanium PowerBook uh, and the uh, the PowerMac Cube. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that. Yeah, it's, it, was, it wasn't a popular product. It was a 
it was a cube. It was about this big, you know, maybe, I don't know, 10 inches square. And, um, you know, it, it pulled out with a handle so you could put more RAM in it. It was a pretty big failure for them, but it was uh, a really beautiful product. And I um, art directed the photography for that, the Titanium Power Book. Uh, I believe I worked on one of the CRT IMAX, uh, although I can't remember. And um, I maybe I helped out with some other packaging as well. But, uh, you know, we worked for 13 months on um, building the photography style, setting the standard for that. Uh, you know, a lot of really getting into the details. Um, and, and Steve was very detail-oriented, which was great, around what's the right density of the shadows or the reflections of the product in the photograph, or what's the right angle to choose for the product. He was very, very detail-oriented uh, for a CEO. And, um, you know, very uh, in, in the weeds, um, also very inspirational. You know, he would hop on uh, when we, we would meet and we would talk about work, but he, then he would hop on a browser and surf around and just talk about things that he liked as well. So it was kind of like an Apple keynote meeting with him every time where he try to teach us things about design or architecture. That's wonderful, Joe. Thank you so much for sharing all these wonderful insights. So what are your tips to the beginners on how to start into design? Well, I think that, you know, it's, it's, you have to be a very good student now. Um, I was not a great student, so I got lucky. Uh, and I think you have to, you have to work really hard to get into a good design school now. Just the criteria is so much more competitive now than it was um, back then. I think in general, universities are more competitive in general, not just design. But I think it helps to have a good uh, a love for research. Um, I think design now involves understanding consumers, understanding people and what their motivations are, what their lives are like. Uh, I remember working for Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati for a few years, and uh, I was the creative director of Crest, which is a toothpaste, um, you know, all around the world, I'm sure as you know. And so I spent time doing focus groups all over the country uh, helping, you know, understand why people pick up certain packages versus others, um, visiting families in their homes uh, in Cincinnati to understand what do they really value about a new product line that P&G was thinking about launching or, you know, why that product is important for their lives. So there's a bit of a psychological research aspect that comes into play with design, especially now, you know, when you think about the web and you're designing software or apps, you know, you're trying to drive, drive engagement and you're trying to create a user experience that's effective. It's really about psychology and how do you create an experience that gets them to what they really want to get out of the experience as quickly as possible. You know, I, I think from a brand perspective, we often talk about that we design the signals that companies want to send out to the world and their target audiences, um, whether that's uh, the media um, crafting a message that is important to the media, or whether that's um, creating an experience for um, people and, and customers. Um, you know, it's all about what is that customer, what does our client want to create in terms of a messaging platform and a brand position? And then we design signals to send out to the world. In term, and, and those signals take the form of images or identities or digital experiences. But it's really about, we spend a lot of time trying to understand how to create that, that communication between a brand and its target audiences. That's, that's really what my job is, boils down to. Thank you so much, Joe. So let's begin our episode with typography. So what exactly is typography and why is it important? That's a great question. You know, typography has two sides of it. And I'm, I'm very passionate about typography. I think, you know, I'm a bit of a, a nerd and I grew up as a bit of a nerd, you know, and I, I love detailed things. And I love picking apart puzzles. Uh, you know, I played Dungeons and Dragons a lot 
growing up? Did you did you play at all growing up, Tej? We, no, we, no. we never had. No, you didn't have it, but maybe you maybe had board games. Or yes, yes. Video games, you know, maybe, um, you know, so I, I, uh, I, I loved the puzzle aspect of that, of solving puzzles and, how, and adventures. Um, and, and I think typography or typeface design is the same thing for me as to having the, trying to understand a culture and the history uh, is important to design a typeface for that's in a different alphabet. And so our, you know, of course, we speak English just like you and our alphabet is called Latin because it was designed by the Roman Empire and they spoke Latin. But, you know, even though we speak English, the alphabet is actually Latin. And so um, I recently designed or, or uh, creative directed a, uh, a Devanagari alphabet uh, font, um, which you, you might speak Hindi, right? And so uh, the alphabet is called Devanagari. And so I took time to research Devanagari and what it looks like and why, why does it have the horizontal line across the top that all the letters hang down from? Um, and so that was really a lot of fun is the research aspect is very important to typography and typeface design. I, I worked with an Arabic type designer recently as well to understand the nuances of, you know, how, why the position of certain forms means what it does. Um, you know, Latin is 26 letter forms um, in caps and then lowercase. You know, and, and other alphabets come in hundreds, if not thousands, of different letter forms. So it's important to understand the culture that you're designing for. Um, it's, and I guess that's really true of any design project. You know, if you're designing a household product for a family, you have to understand what motivates families. And it's very similar with the typeface as well. You have to understand the culture you're designing for. So there's typeface design, and then there's typesetting, which is typography, which is really the, uh, the art of layout the art of legibility, clear content hierarchy, you know, so I think those coming together is really where I like to live as designer. Thank you so much, Joe. And coming to the second question, which has been like most of the times confused by a lot of people, which is what's the difference between a typeface and a font and how to choose a perfect typeface from millions of available choices? Um, uh, it's funny. I, there, it's, it, it's, it's not, there's no agreed upon definition between the two. I always tell people that uh, typefaces what designers call typefaces and fonts are what your mom calls a typeface. <laughs> <laughs> right, because Microsoft uh, and Google call them fonts, and so you know, and we, you know, eventually type, type designers are going to give up and just call ourselves font designers because that's what the whole world is going to call them eventually. But you know, I, I think there's a bit of a technical side to um, fonts that you know they're more about the family and the binary. Um, you know, engineers behind typefaces will refer them as fonts. Um, you know, and typefaces to me have their root in um and lead type and gutenberg and all that good stuff you know you know because it, typing was a verb of course you know so it's uh, i think there 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 are two sides of the same coin from a terminology perspective to me <laughs> so how to choose a perfect typeface from the all available choices for any given project well I, I, for me it's all about psychology and what signal do you want to send for your project you know if you want something that feels trusted uh, and friendly i think that's why a lot of tech brands are using geometric sans serifs because they have a combination of being crafted and trustworthy, uh, but then they feel friendly because they're based on circles, right? And so I think it's under, it's important to understand the psychology of the signal you're trying to send for your client. Uh, now, if you're designing something for a lifestyle brand, um, you know, maybe you want something a little bit more of a, like a serif, something that speaks, that's a little more passionate and emotional, uh, a little more personal and, and intimate. So I think it's about the qualities and the personality attributes first, 
And then you try to find typefaces that match those. I think that helps it narrow it down too, Tej, because there are millions of faces out there. Uh, and it's in there on Google Fonts and they're in Adobe Typekit and they're on fonts.com and they come with the operating systems now. So it's really hard to choose the right one. Um, and I think that's why you have to go back to the personality attributes you're trying to identify and that helps you narrow the list down. Thank you so much, George. Second question is also somewhat related to this, which is what are the best practices for choosing and pairing of font? If you could share some examples of your favorite font pair. Oh, wow. That's a great question. You know, I, uh, I really enjoy combining serifs and sans together. I think that I'm a big believer in dance partners in design, uh, or I guess some, some designers might refer to as wine pairings. You know, um, and I, I like to have a little contrast in the design system of maybe a sans as a display font that gives you a, a nice modern feeling. And then a serif that is very legible at text sizes. Now that that's only recently come back. That used to be the way to do it back before Di uh, digital because we had magazines and books. Now, for a long time, I would say a good 20 years, so there's a bit of a, a the, the dark ages where we had low resolution screens that dictated sans serifs to be used more because they were more legible, especially on mobile when we had, I would say, less than 200 PPI screens. Now it's actually really hard to find a phone that has less than 300 PPI. I mean, I've done the research, even in rural India, you can get a very good, uh, very affordable phone at a very high resolution. That wasn't necessarily the case five, seven years ago, but now Retina, Retina class resolution is the dominant resolution everywhere around the world. Even you know in rural Africa, um, you know, um, you know, Central Asia, you can find high resolution screens. So what that means from a design perspective is we can start using serifs again because we've got resolution that. It at least meets, if not exceeds, print. Print was 300 DPI or LPI, uh, which is roughly equivalent to um, 300 PPI uh, in the world of digital display. So what that means is we can be more creative again. We can have serifs again. We can have scripts. And I think that's why you're seeing a renaissance of type design, because you can have calligraphy again. You can have handwriting fonts that are very legible on mobile or on a smartwatch because the screens are so high resolution. Um, so I, I really think the um, the creativity as a graph designer in terms of typefaces so selections is wonderful now because you've got so many choices. Um, so I really like to combine do interesting combinations of serifs and sans. Uh, you know, I, I really like um, I, I really like some of the German revivals uh, from the '60s. Uh, you know, I like uh, uh, Renner was one of my favorites uh, type designers. He designed Futura. He he also designed a typeface called Plaque that was re-released by Monotype a couple of years ago, and it's beautiful. It's got really interesting quirks and details, like the, the lowercase r has a circle for the terminal, uh, which is a runner, uh, which is a run known runner thing to do. Um, you know, I, I also really love, um, you know, some of the revivals that Monotype has done, especially Hel Helvetica was really strong. And, and I think there's some really beautiful uh, serifs, you know, out there, like uh, Domain is really beautiful. I'm often trying to pitch that to my clients, uh, you know, so I, I really am, am obsessed with serifs again these days and typefaces that have Easter eggs in them, you know, those little details that you enjoy when you make something larger. Uh, I, I really enjoy finding typefaces with Easter eggs. Thank you so much, Joe. So how do we craft typography for accessibility and inclusiveness? That's a great question. So I, there have been some interesting 
efforts around creating uh, typefaces for, um, for dyslexia, for example. Uh, one of my friends, uh, Brad Scott, uh, created a, uh, a typeface um, specifically for dyslexia. And I think the key to that, and I advised on it a little bit, was that specifically for dyslexia, I know that's not all of accessibility, but it's one small slice. You have to make sure there's a, a lot of, each individual letter form is as legible and as different from the other letter form as possible. So for example, in Latin, the, the lowercase l is just a bar, typically, right? So like if you look at Futura, it's just a bar. And if you, uh, and in some typefaces also have a one that can be a bar, <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's very confusing to people um, and, and not just for accessibility. And they might be not, not native English speakers or they may not be used to Latin. They may be learning it for the first time. And they may be like, oh, my, why? Why are these designed the same? Like, who thought of this? That doesn't make any sense. Right. That, that just is not a good design approach to do two different letter forms. One's mathematical and the other one's a consonant and design them exactly the same. That doesn't make any sense. So. You know, I think it's important to really look at them as an outsider and say, well, how do we differentiate? So, for example, on an L, you can introduce a little hook to the, that goes to the right. That's more of an archaic form, but we can bring it back. It's almost something from uh, black letter, which was a very old form of, uh, of Latin in Germany and England. Um, we use it in the United States as well, but it's more cal calligraphic. Uh, and so you can revive some of those forms to differentiate the letters more. The other as aspect you want to do is when designing for accessibility is you want to uh, introduce as much negative or white space into the letter form as possible. So what do I mean by that? So white space is what defines the, the, the legibility of a letter form. So if you think about an N, a lowercase N or an O, the white space is what makes them different. So the N has a white space coming up into it. An O has a big white hole in it. You have to, you have to separate those out and, and make them as pronounced as possible. So the legibility of a letter actually comes from what's not there and versus the, the darkness of it, if that makes sense. Thank you so much, Joe. So any word of advice for young designers to start their typography journey and how to build an attractive portfolio? In terms of typeface design, Tej, or? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think what's great now is the tools are so easy compared to what they used to be. Uh, you know, I used to work in Fontographer and Font Lab, and those are much more, um, you know, complicated uh, apps. Um, they're more for in professionals, you know, quote unquote engineers. Um, now you have Glyphs, which I love. I, I think Glyphs is powerful, but it, it, it hides the power behind a very simple interface. Um, and you can access the power if you want, um, but it also can be very simple. Um, so Glyphs by itself has created a whole new generation of typeface designers all around the world because it's so simple to use and, and a relatively affordable app as well. You can copy and paste directly from Illustrator or you can design in Glyphs. Um, its export function is very easy. Uh, you know, and, and so I think that the tools are relatively easy to work with. Now, you know, you have to you have a learning curve and you have a good good advice, but you can go to Glyph's forums and they have got great tutorials of how to use the app. Uh, I think, um, you know, if you know how to code HTML, which I know a lot of young designers do, working in Glyph's is pretty straightforward. So the tools are great. I think also, you know, some, uh, I think there are some newsletters you can subscribe to that uh, as a type designer are very useful. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I'll have to, I can follow up. I, I, I get a couple of newsletters that I, um, you know, that, that are font guides and they send the latest news. 
Um, you know, I um, enjoy going to fonts.com or Monotype's site to look at the latest and greatest on font developments. Um, so I think there's keeping up with all the uh, best fonts is interesting. Also on Instagram, it's a great resource. You can follow hashtags like type design or, uh, you know, and then you can kind of see the latest and greatest. 36 days of type is a great, uh, is a great resource as well. You can follow them on Instagram to see, um, just get a sense of all the great type designers working around the world. So there's many great ways from social media to the tools being easy to, you know, getting newsletters um, to kind of get a sense of what's happening out there. Thank you so much, Joe. So could you please share with us how does your typical day look like and any interesting stories? Sure. Well, I don't know how, if it's interesting anymore with COVID, you know, but, uh, you know, we typically um, get up and get our kids ready for school. We've got an 18-year-old about to go to college and a 12-year-old in sixth grade. So we get them up, get them going, uh, get them working on their homework. Um, and then we when we usually, uh, my wife and I will spend about an hour on email, just catching up with our clients or touch base with each other on our work. And then we'll take um, a walk with our kids uh, and our dog just to get some exercise and then I'll, I'll probably work for a couple of hours. Usually, it just, just depends. I might be designing an identity or sending feedback to um, some of our designers that work for us. We usually have about 8 to 12 designers working for us at any one time. So I have to touch base with the team. And we work with people all over the, all over the world, you know, Switzerland, England. Um, you know, we, we've been working with people, uh, type designers in India, you know, when I was consulting last year with a, a really talented designer in Nigeria, helping me with an African font. Um, you know, I was also meeting with a team out of Taiwan that was helping us with a Chinese font. So I'm usually meeting with people all over the world throughout the day. Um, which is great. I love that part of all my job. It's super fun to learn about different cultures and work with other professionals. It's it's really part of the, one of the favorite parts of my job. Um, so there's communicating, and then um, you know we'll I usually work through lunch so I can get a bit of a run in or a bike ride in every day. That's important to manage your stress and stay stay in shape. Uh, and then I'll you know probably work till six or seven at night. Um, and then uh, try to spend the evening uh, eating dinner with the family every night. That's important to us. Um, you know, we try to have a good balance of not trying to work all the time so we can stay fresh and sharp and not burn out. So that, that's important for us. Thank you so much, Joe. So we'll conclude the show by you recommending three favorite books of yours and also three people who inspire you the most in this space. Wow. Um, gosh, three favorite books. You know, I'm a pretty avid reader. That's hard to narrow down. Gosh, well, uh, let me start with the design book. I really like uh, Michael Beirut's book, um, How To. It's a great uh, book. I think he's coming out with a new edition, by the way. I think I, he just posted about that. Uh, it's called How To, and he writes about case studies that he's done over the years at Pentagram, uh, and I think a little bit of Vignelli. And, and he basically he breaks it down on what the lessons were behind the work, which I think is really powerful. So it's not just about the beauty of the work or the end result, it's about how he got there in the process, which I think is really powerful for designers to see the process. Um, you know, I, um, uh, I'm also reading uh, the letters of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson right now because I love history. Um, so that not necessarily about design, but I think it's important for designers to branch out and just be students of life. So, so for me, the history is, uh, is important uh, and I enjoy uh, reading about it. Um, I also just uh, read um, uh, Martian Chronicles again, uh, which is a wonderful uh, science fiction book from the 1950s, but it's beautifully written. Um, I'm a big sci-fi 
person. Uh, and I do like to read trash sci-fi, but I also like well-written sci-fi too. <laughs> so but it's, okay, it's okay. Both are okay. Um, but I, I can't recommend uh, Martian Chronicles enough because it's just beautifully written. So, uh, so I would say those are my uh, three books to recommend. Three people. Okay. So three people that inspire me or three Gosh, you know, I guess uh, there's so many people that inspire me. Um, well, you know, first of all, uh, I couldn't do what I do without my wife. Um, she tells me when I'm being boneheaded or making the wrong decision. She's just a great, she keeps me honest, Ted, you know, and I think that's important to have somebody in your life like that, whether it's a partner or a friend or, you know, an advisor or a mentor. So she's uh, really important to my um, kind of personal success. You know, I, uh, I, my good friend, Craig Black, he's been a, a good friend to get to know. He's a typographer and muralist out of Scotland. And he really always approaches things from a perspective of joy and creativity, which is a good reminder for me because sometimes I get too logical about things. And then, you know, although I've never um, necessarily uh, known any of the Bauhaus designers because they passed away. You know, they're, they're, I'm not, I'm not, they're, they're a previous generation. I uh, really admire the work of Jan Chicholt, who was uh, a German designer and a member of uh, the, the Bauhaus. And uh, what was inspiring about him was that he was doing experimental typography in the 1930s in Nazi Germany. And he was actually jailed uh, for subversive arts because of his typography, which is in a way laughable like what, why would you get jailed for typography and layouts but you know they were trying to stamp out anything uh that they perceived as leftist as subversive and so he was jailed for a short time before he left the country and you know i think um he's just a hero of mine because of his craft and everything he designed but also because you know he stood up for what he believed in so um so those are my kind of three influences in my life Thank you so much, Joe, for sharing all these wonderful insights with us. We are looking forward to host you again in our upcoming episodes. I'd love to. I'd love to, Tej, and I, I really enjoyed it. So I hope your audience does too.